We have been going through the book of Galatians. Um, I will say again, even though James said it once, welcome to RUF. We're glad you're here. RUF is for the convinced and the unconvinced. Um, We are going to be going through a book of the Bible trying to understand what is it that God has to say uh, to the world, to understand reality. I always think of preaching as orientation to reality. Um, I wish all preaching was that way. Um, Sometimes it's not, and that's a shame. And sometimes my preaching doesn't do that very well. But what we're going to learn about tonight is just a vitally important principle. And it actually comes out of a story, and yet we're going to learn from the way Paul gets in Peter's face and the way he does that and why he does that. We're going to learn something vitally important for understanding what is it that makes Christianity unique and why does it matter and why, why is it actually, why is the gospel described not just as a cool idea, but as the power of God? Because it is described that way numerous times in the Bible. The gospel, it says in Romans chapter 1, is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And one of the things that Paul is dealing with in this letter that he's written to these people, these Galatians, people that he knew, that he had first taught about Jesus, and now some false teachers have come and have robbed these people. They've bought into some false teaching that's robbed them of their joy and of the power. And what we're going to look at tonight actually helps us begin to understand uh, what went wrong and how we can use the gospel, how the gospel can become power in our life and orient us to all of reality. So if you have a Bible, let's look at chapter 2, and we're going to pick up at verse 11. Just going to read five verses tonight is all. Now, remember, this is a story Paul had been, you know, basically... um, talking about how these false teachers had said that Paul got his gospel from the other apostles. He learned it from them, and he had garbled it. He hadn't really gotten it quite straight. And so these other teachers had come in after Paul and said, you know, Paul, he got you off to a good start, but he missed some things. And now we've come from the official apostles, the real apostles, to tell you the rest of the truth, which is not only do you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to obey all of the Jewish laws that mark you as distinctively Jewish, the things that, that have to do with the kinds of ways that you wash and obey different cleansing rituals, the kind of foods that you eat, even circumcision, the practice of circumcision, which was something that set Jews off apart from other people uh, and other cultures. You need to obey all these things. After all, God revealed his truth to the Jews first, and Christianity is built on that, so it only makes sense that you should become Jewish on your way to becoming Christian and having a relationship with God through Jesus. And that's what these people have come to say. And Paul has been defending himself and saying, no, that's not actually true at all. I got my gospel directly from God. I did go up and meet with the other apostles, and we agreed that we all had the same belief and understanding of what the gospel was. I'm not derivative from them in any sort of way. And that's where we're at here. He's continuing that line of defense, and he re- talks about another story Uh, which is here in verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, now Antioch is a Gentile area. It's not a Jewish area. It's the place where Paul was living at this point. And when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, who's another one of these apostles, he used to eat with the Gentiles. 
But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray together briefly and then we're going to unpack this. Lord, we do thank you for this this word, this portion of your word. And we pray, Lord, that we could sit in it for a few minutes now, that it could get into our bones, that it could change not just what we think, but the very way that we live. We ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. I should start out, I guess, defining um, a Christianese kind of word. You know what Christianese is? Christianese is sort of this language that Christians speak that nobody else can understand. Um, And if you've not grown up in a church, in particular kinds of churches, you may not understand a lot of the lingo that Christians use. It's really a shame that that uh, phenomena exists because so many of the words that are Christianese words weren't originally intended to be religious words at all. This word justification, for instance, or the word redemption, we think of those as religious words. They weren't originally. Paul used those words because they communicated to people in his culture, not because they were religious words that only religious people understood. But this word justification, what does it mean to be justified? It means basically to have the approval, the commendation, the judgment saying, you are beautiful in my sight. And when it's used in this context, like it is here in the last couple verses, it's talking about what does God think about you? The heart of Christianity is that Christians are those who are justified in God's sight. In other words, when God looks at people who are Christians, what the Bible teaches us is he looks at them and says, you are beautiful in my sight. I think that, unfortunately, a lot of times Christians just focus on doing the right things and not the wrong things and lose this whole aesthetic, aesthetic sense that is so important to this idea of justification, that it's not just doing the right thing. It's the beauty that comes from holiness. It is doing the right things. It's not just keeping your nose straight and not breaking, you know, out of the pack at all. It really is the beauty of, of God's righteousness that's been given to you. When God looks at you to be justified means that you're seen as beautiful in God's sight. Now, the question is, why? And this is the debate that Paul and these false teachers have. Paul says that to be seen as beautiful in God's sight, the only thing, the only thing you need is to trust in Jesus and ask that that beauty would be given to you, to believe that he lived and died in the place of sinners, to give that beauty to people that don't deserve it. Faith in Christ is all you need for that beauty to be yours. The false teachers came along and said, well, not exactly. You do need to believe in Jesus, but then you need to do your very best to do all the right things. And if you do that and you mean it, well, then God will look at you and see you as beautiful in his sight. 
And the debate between these, the, the Paul and the false teachers, he goes so far as to say what they're teaching is not even a gospel at all. And I've talked about that just to give you a quick, quick reminder. It's not a gospel because the word gospel means good news. It's, it's good news that, that God has done something in Jesus so that beauty can come to people who don't deserve it. That's something worth talking about. It's something worth proclaiming. It's worth shouting about. It's worth singing about. But what the false teachers are saying, and the reason Paul says that their teaching is not good news at all, it's not a gospel, it's not good news. It doesn't qualify for that name because what they're saying is you need to do this, this, and this. So it's not news, it's advice. The gospel is not news, it's advice. It's not God saying do this and do that and then I will count you as beautiful. It is the proclamation that God has done something in Jesus, namely sending him to live and die in the place of sinners. And that means that beauty can be yours. This is justification. Now, what Peter is doing threatens that. And that's really the heart of the principle that we're going to look at tonight. The way Paul analyzes what Peter has done wrong is fascinating. He could have said to him, Peter, you're breaking the rules. We're not supposed to look down at other people. We're not supposed to be racist. He could have said to Peter, stop being a racist. Stop breaking the rules. But he doesn't say that. What he actually says to Peter is, you're a Jew. This is in verse 14. Yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? What does that mean? What it means is this. Peter, Peter came to this realization before this event. He came to the realization that your culture is not what makes you beautiful. That your cultural practices are not what make you beautiful. He had believed that. And in doing that, he had broken with the mainstream of Jewish thought. The Jews had fallen into thinking, many of them, that what made them special was their adherence to all of these laws and customs. It's what made them better than other people. And one of the ways that this manifests itself was in regard to who they would sit down and eat a meal with. Now, the Jews that were really strict and really concerned about holiness knew that the Gentiles didn't follow all the laws God had laid down for what you were supposed to eat and how you were supposed to wash and how you were supposed to prepare the food, okay? And yet Jesus, when he came, he said, listen, those laws were intended to point you to something that was coming. They were not supposed to be the rules for all time. They actually were leading you to something that Jesus had come to teach, which was this. We need to be clean and beautiful in God's sight to come into his presence. But all of those, all of those ceremonial cleansing laws built into them was the message that, yes, you need to be clean, but this isn't good enough. And these laws aren't going to do it. It's built into the whole sacrificial system. You can go to the temple, you can sacrifice animals and have their blood cover over you, but it's not really going to work. It doesn't really ultimately clean you. How do you know that? Well, because you've got to do it again next year. Built into all of these laws was the idea that they're not really working. And yet, 
And yet that message got missed. And so you have the Jews thinking that it's so important that they obey these clean laws. Even after Jesus comes and says, I declare all foods clean because what I'm doing with my life and my death is what the clean laws were pointing to. I am providing the cleansing that these laws could only point to. Therefore, these laws don't need to be obeyed anymore. They don't function anymore in the same way. Now, what happens, you see, is that some of the Jews were really kind of wigged out by that. They didn't like that idea. Even Peter had a hard time believing that. And I mentioned last week, God had to give him a vision of this sheet coming down with all these different animals. Some of them you were allowed to eat as a Jew. Some of them you weren't. And a voice spoke to him and said, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. This is in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, if you want to read about this. And Peter eventually got it. He realized that God was welcoming not just Jews, but Gentiles, non-Jews, into a relationship with him. It was hard for him to get that lesson, but he got it. And that's why Paul says, you are, you've been living, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. In other words, you've been living like somebody who doesn't feel they need to obey these food laws to be beautiful in God's sight anymore. And that's great, because that's true. But now, some of these other Jewish Christians have come from James. I don't think James actually sent them or told them to say this, but they came from James, or at least claimed to be from James. The Greek is a little, a little nebulous in that regard. But these people came from James, and Peter shrinks back from this, I guess, enlightened understanding that God had given him. And he begins to not eat with the Gentiles that he had been eating with. By doing that, what he's saying to the Gentiles is, you're not clean enough. You're not beautiful enough. There's something you need to do if you're going to be clean and accepted in God's sight. That's why Paul takes this so seriously. He's saying, what you're doing, it may seem like a minor thing, shrinking back from eating with these Gentile brothers and sisters, but what you're actually doing, what you're actually communicating to these people is they don't measure up. How can you do that? Peter, have you forgotten that the reason you measure up is not because of what you did? You can't be beautiful in God's sight by what you do or what he describes as the works of the flesh or by observing the law. You can't be beautiful doing that. And yet by your very actions, you're telling these Gentile people that when they thought they could be beautiful and fully acceptable to God merely by faith in Jesus, now you're telling them by your actions that they haven't done enough. It's not good enough. And so Paul says to him, he was, he, he, that, Paul says to him this thing he says in verse 14. But notice at the beginning of verse 14 why he says it the way he does. And this is the, the principle that we get at here. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I told Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew and all that. And I've just said, P- Paul's analysis of what's happening is not just that Peter did the wrong thing but that Peter was acting in a way that contradicted the truth of the gospel. That he was giving a lie to the gospel message by the way he was living. Again, because what he was communicating was, faith in Jesus is not enough for you to be beautiful. You also need to keep doing all these clean laws. Cover your bases. It makes sense, right? It makes sense. Why not cover your bases? Paul says if you're covering your bases, you don't really have faith in Christ. And what this means, and this is fascinating, a couple lessons that we learned from this. And the first is this. We should think of the gospel not just as 
the bare minimum of truth that gets us in the Christian club, however you think about that. If you're, if you're somebody who's wondering what is Christianity, I suspect that if you've hung around with Christians, you probably have thought that the gospel was like a small little paragraph that you needed to give mental assent to, and then you were in. Or maybe you needed to go forward at a meeting and pray a prayer, and they would tell you the words, and you just say it, and then you're in. The gospel is generally regarded as, by a lot of people, Christians and people outside of Christianity or trying to figure out Christianity, it's regarded as the bare minimum you need to get in. But what Paul is showing us here is the gospel is a continual need of even an apostle. Even somebody who'd been with Jesus, like Peter, could still live in such a way and did live in such a way that he had shown that he had lost, in a sense, an orientation to the gospel. Now, what does that mean? The gospel is you're beautiful, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. And he gives you credit for that. But when you fail to remember that, then you begin to have to cover your bases some way. You begin to have to count on something to make you beautiful, to make you feel beautiful. That's, that's the principle, is that you have a continual need to be reoriented to the truth that the gospel, the good news about what Jesus did, is what makes you beautiful. And that Christians, even Christian leaders, even apostles, forget that. And it manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. In Peter's life, it manifests itself in him being a racist. But what Paul says is, that's just the surface. What's actually going on is he's failed to orient himself and his life and his way that he relates to people. He's failed to orient that to the truth that is the gospel. Which means the gospel is not just how you get in. It's how you grow. It's how you live. Most Christians have way too small of an idea of what the gospel is and of why it matters. Paul, by rebuking Peter this way, is showing us is that the gospel is the way, is the way that you get set free from anything that enslaves you. If you're enslaved by your fear of other people, ultimately it's a gospel issue. Ultimately it connects to what you believe or have forgotten about God and what he's done. Let's see how this, how this works out. The, the gospel, think of it this way, the gospel is, is almost a path. It, it, has, it has a way of speaking into every issue of life. And yet, there are false gospels, if you will, that seek to also speak into every area of life and to provide an alternate framework for how we can live. Um, there was a great old church father named Tertullian, and he said it this way. He said that just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, remember on the cross there was thieves on either side of him, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, this doctrine of justification, the idea that you're beautiful in God's sight solely because of what Jesus did, so that doctrine of justification is always being crucified between two thieves. There are two beliefs and orientations of life that threaten to rob the truth of the gospel and rob the joy and the comfort and the power the gospel should bring. And they are this. On the one hand, you have moralism or legalism. It's what I've probably talked about the most so far this semester. 
because it's the issue that is really plaguing the Gentile or the, the uh, Galatians. This issue that it's not enough to believe in Jesus, there are also certain things you need to do. The things you need to do to really get in good with God. That's moralism. That's a denial of the gospel. It's saying that believe in Jesus is not enough. You also need to do these things. Then on the other hand, you have what might be described as relativism or pragmatism. It's the idea that truth doesn't matter, that you don't have to live in a particular way that God has said. You basically are free to do whatever you want, whatever works. So in the, on the one hand, you have you know, th- this idea over here, th- which says moralism, you ha- there's something you have to do. Over here, it basically says, you don't, no, there's nothing, there's no external authority. You basically can do and feel and think whatever you want, whatever works for you. And whenever we're appro- uh, we approach different issues, we can, we can seek to, to orient ourselves in those ways rather than the gospel. Um, maybe maybe I, an example would help. If you think about the issue of, of discouragement, or, or maybe, yeah, the issue of discouragement. Maybe you're suffering and there's been hard things that have come into your life. I suspect that you can all identify with this. Um, if, if your basic orientation to life and to what God thinks about you is not based upon Jesus lived and died in my place and therefore I'm beautiful in his sight and he's thrilled with me, not because I do so well, but because Jesus did so well and I get credit for that. If you forget that, then you will be tempted to do one of these other two things. You'll fall into one of these other two orientations to try to make life work and try to deal with your trials or your suffering. If you're moralistic, if you're legalistic, if you think that what really will get you in good with God is to do all the right things, then when trials happen, there's really only one of two things you can think. Either you hate yourself because you're obviously not doing the right things to get God to bless your life, or you hate God because he's not keeping his end of the bargain. In other words, depending on how well you feel you're doing, how well you feel you're performing, you'll either hate yourself if you're not performing well, or you'll hate God if you feel you're performing well and he's not paying. If he's not paying you for how well you're doing and all the sacrifices you're making, if he's not bringing blessings into your life as you would define blessings, well then, you know, something's went wrong, you see? Because ultimately moralism is not an attempt to love God, it's an attempt to manipulate God. It's an attempt to use God as a means to an end. Ultimately, you don't want God for God. You want God because you want something else and you think he'll give it to you. And you think the best way to guarantee that he'll give it to you is to either do the right things or to not do the wrong things. And if you're doing pretty good with that, well, he sure better deliver. And if he doesn't, well, then I'm just going to kind of go on on my way. But if you're not doing the right things, and this is what most people, if they're Christians and they're living in this sort of false idea over here, every week they come to church and they hear more and more things they're supposed to do, they feel like crap all the time. They feel like they're not measuring up. And so it makes perfect sense to them that their life is not turning out as they want it. Okay? That doesn't really help you with discouragement. I mean, you're discouraged and all you can do is be mad at yourself or be mad at God. Now over on this side, over here, how do you deal with discouragement? However you can. Whatever works, whatever will distract me, whatever will deaden the pain, everything is, is, is open. 
you know, God doesn't really have anything to do with this over here. You've, you've kind of left God out of the equation. He doesn't help anyway. So I'm just going to try to make it the best I can. And nobody can tell me how to live. Nobody knows what I've suffered. Nobody has a right to tell me anything. Okay? Now those are two basic ways that you can live. How does a Christian, how would Paul say to Peter, you need to deal with discouragement? How would he say to us? He would say, listen, the one thing you know, bedrock truth, is that God is not punishing you because he hates you or because you didn't toe the line. God is not withholding blessings from your life because you don't really, really love him all the time the way you're supposed to. No. As, uh, as John Newton, the great hymn writer, said, because of his great love and his sovereign power, nothing, how's it, Kristen, remind me? Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing is needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing is needful that he withholds. In other words, you learn that even in the midst of the trials, even in the midst of the suffering, this comes to me from the hand of a loving God. Now that's not easy. But believe me, if you think that the reason you're suffering is because you haven't done enough, or because God somehow doesn't pay his vows, man, I know it's difficult to believe that everything comes from the hand of a loving God. It was difficult for Jesus to believe that as he hung on a cross. But it's reality. So there's a gospel way, a way of being oriented to the truth of what Jesus thinks about us that's different from these other two ways. And that's, that's what Paul is teaching us here. Now, what this means, if you've got the little outline, I'm, I'm on the back now. It means that that it's so vital that we understand and when we think about our issues and the issues that enslave us, we, we think about them in terms of what are we doing with the gospel? How are we connecting to God? Have we forgotten something about him that's really driving us to put our hope in either moralism or relativism? Uh, in other words, there, there are two different ways of, of really doing the same thing. The choice is either try your best to save yourself or trust in Jesus to save you. And there's really no in-between. There are two ways of trying to save yourself. One is by keeping the rules, and the other is by making up the rules and and hoping that God is going to orient himself around you. But but both of those are really two two sides of the same coin. They're both ways of saying, I want to stay in control. And I want to be in charge of taking care of myself. Okay? Now, once you begin to understand this, it really, I think, opens up a door of hope in thinking about the issues that you struggle with. Because for so many people, they struggle with issues on this surface level. Either they, they try to change their behavior through willpower, or they try to feel differently. They just try and tell themselves, I should feel different. You remember the old Stuart Smalley Saturday Night Live thing, you know, every day look in the mirror and, you know, you know, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me, you know. And we laugh at that because it's ridiculous. And yet there's so many of us that that's the best we got. That's the best we got. We're orienting ourselves around trying to convince ourselves that people like us. And you have evidence to the contrary all the time. 
but you're trying to shut that out, right? And it doesn't work. It ultimately doesn't work. It just enslaves you more. Because the more you're counting on people liking you to feel beautiful, the more it devastates you when they don't. See, it always works out this way. It's always this catch-22 where you start to put your hope in something other than what Jesus thinks about you. You put your hope in something that you feel you can control better than God. You feel like God can't really be controlled. I don't know really what he thinks about me. I don't seem to be able to to figure that out or know how to to know for sure what he thinks about me. So I'm going to cover my bases. I'm going to get people to like me because I can control people. I could do that. And most of us aren't so aren't so crass as to, to probably even admit it to ourselves. But that's what we do. That's what we think. That I can control what people think about me. And I can do it so well that that's worth, that's good, that's good enough. I can actually count on that for my sense of self-worth. And then somebody, you just can't get them to like you. And it doesn't make any sense. Why? Maybe you don't even know the stories that are circulating about you. Yikes. See, you you realize quickly you can't control what people think about you. And that either drives you to Jesus or it drives you insane. And it makes you grasp even more desperately at getting people to like you. And you see it, right? You see it in yourself and you see it in your friends. You think, why are they so needy? It's because once you start down that road, once you forsake Jesus as being enough, and you start down the road of anything else, it ends up taking over you. It ends up controlling you. And it doesn't matter. You can can try and tell yourself that you're good enough and beautiful enough all day long. You can try to use your willpower to quit saying yes to everything that you shouldn't be saying yes to. But it won't help you. Because ultimately what you have is a failure to be oriented to the truth of the gospel. Ultimately, you say yes to everybody because you don't trust Jesus' love enough to be okay with people being disappointed in you. I'm preaching to myself. We're all like this. There are things that enslave us. And once we start going down that road, we get more and more desperate to make it work. And more and more enslaved and more and more vulnerable. And so what I'm saying is, and what Paul is saying and teaching us here is that the core of what's going on is that we've left the truth of the gospel. We've tried to live by a different truth. We've tried to live by by a different truth. We've tried to walk in line with the truth that if you do the right things, everything will work out. And that isn't really working. Or then we try and live by this other truth over here, which says, you just decide how you want to live. You just be free to be you. And yet, we don't know who we are. Because ultimately, we, we're not big enough to define who we are. You can't be completely self-referential. You find that your friends define who you are, or what people think about you, or the things that you can do. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a mess, and it's a trap. But here's the thing. Once you understand that your people-pleasing is connected to you forgetting justification by faith, see, now you actually have a key to help you begin to fight against people-pleasing. Your willpower is not enough. Your happy thoughts are not enough. But the gospel comes and says, the reality is, there is a solid rock that we can trust in, 
that is solid and secure. And we need not only the Bible to tell us this, we need to come and hear God's word opened up. We need to sing songs that remind us about reality and truth. Not songs where we try to convince ourselves that we're good enough and happy enough and God must really love us because we worship so well. We don't need that. We need songs that remind us of the fact and orient us to the reality that there's nothing that we can do that can earn God's love more and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less if we are in Christ. That's what we need because the reason that these other things are so powerful to us, become gods to us, is because we forget who the real God is and what he's done. So when you're struggling with something, you have, to, you have to learn this principle. You have to analyze it in terms of the gospel. So for a lot of Christians, a lot of people that grow up in churches, they grow up thinking all that really matters is what I do. And then eventually they begin to think, well, maybe what I do is based on what I feel. So I really need to change my feelings. And a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people are trying to do things to change their feelings. Um, but ultimately... Eventually, I hope you discover that even your feelings are based on the way you've oriented yourself, which truth you've oriented yourself to. If you're, if you're living in desperate fear, it's because you're trusting in something that you know ultimately is going to let you down. Right? And so this orientation is the key. You have to be able to, to attack your issues and get below the surface and say, what is the false truth that I've believed here? What is it? How have I oriented my life wrongly here about this issue? Have I, have I thought that I could do certain things that would, that would make this work out? Or have I thought that, that basically God doesn't know what he's talking about and I'm going to define this area of my life? right? You have to get in there. What have you forgotten about God? What have you forgotten about justification that's causing you to need to find beauty somewhere else? And then finally, you know, well, let, let, let me just, let, let me show how this works with racism. And then I want to c- close with a talk about a, a little message about gospel confrontation and how we all need this. Here's how it works with racism. Um, I, I put this down here. I actually put two examples for you, but I want to read this quote from this guy because um, I think it's so helpful. Tim Keller, he says, Paul says here, the roots of racism are a resistance to the gospel, to gospel salvation. In other words, racism is a continuation of works righteousness in a part of our lives. It's a failure to bring our relationships with other cultures into line with grace salvation. Racism arises because our hearts still oppose grace and seek to find ways of self-justification. We need to derive ways to feel superior to other people. One of the ways we do this is through making our culture an idol. Racism is ultimately connected to justification. I I remember it was fascinating. You know, my my sister married a, a black guy. And a guy who's very, you know, I think he was a political science major. And it was very fascinating because he grew up in a very elite upper middle class family in Washington, D.C., and went up to college in New York. I think he went to St. John's, right? And it's really interesting. I remember talking to, to my sister one time about this. You know, they got married and moved to, um, or they got married, and I think, you know, they both had had this idea that racism is really about ignorance. The reason people are racist is because they're ignorant. Then they moved to Birmingham, Alabama, 
And, and he's a doctor, he's a very fine physician. And, and they found, as they're moving in the upper crust, very well-educated people in Birmingham, Alabama, they could not believe this illusion they'd believed all their lives, that racism was just about ignorance. It wasn't. It was, it was born out of people's need to feel superior to other people. Where does that come from? Because what God says to you about who you are isn't powerful enough. You need something else. Racism ultimately connects to justification. So, so why do we need this for a community? See, we all talk about community, but this is where the rubber meets the road. I wonder how many of us have ever been confronted publicly like this and still stuck around with that community. I, I talk to people all the time who say they really want community, but they want community until it gets uncomfortable, and then they move on. We do it all the time. And I will tell you, college is the last time that you can do that and still easily find another group of people to be friends with. But there's a better way. There's a better way. A mentor of mine tried to beat this into my head, not just the gospel, but he also tried to beat this lesson in my head, that intimacy is born through conflict. We need, you need, I need people in my life who will call me on stuff, not just to tell me I did the wrong thing, but to reorient me to the gospel, to remind me of what's true, and to show me how the way I'm living is out of line with the truth. We need that. But of course, the catch-22 that kind of enters into this is unless you really believe the gospel and believe that your beauty is found in what Jesus thinks about you and not in what your friends think about you, well, you'll never have the courage to disappoint people. You'll never have the courage to actually confront people. And so we live in these Christian communities with people that we think are our good friends, but nobody calls anybody on anything. People do crazy stuff. Now listen, Paul does not confront Peter over a little slip-up. What this is not teaching us is every time you see somebody do something wrong, you need to get in their face. But what Paul is teaching us here is when you see somebody trapped, enslaved, in a way of living and thinking that is not in line with the gospel, and yet the gospel is what they profess to believe. In other words, if you see somebody who's living as a hypocrite in their enslavement, you have a role to confront them. But not just to confront them, again, so that you feel superior. The gospel has to be at the, at the heart of this. You have to say, brother, sister, have you forgotten why God loves you and how God loves you? It seems to me that maybe you have. What's going on? Why are you living this way? Why did you talk like that about her? Are, are, are you just so miserable and insecure that you have to cut down everybody else in our group of friends? It's, you know, you're not just going to say, man, you did the wrong thing and I'm not going to be friends with you anymore, but saying, what's happened? Have you forgotten the gospel? Let's pray and ask God to remind us of what's really true, right? Wouldn't you love to be part of a community of people that had the courage to do that, but also had the humility? Because they know that, gosh, if Peter can, if Peter can lose this, gosh, who are we to think that we've got this down? And yet, and yet we have to be in each other's lives. What's the point of this thing that we call Christian community? if we're not in each other's lives, to remind each other of the gospel. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this principle that you teach us. But Lord, help us. Help us to know that you, that you love us even when we failed to do the things that you've said we should do in this passage. Lord, we're such cowards. Or when we do confront, we confront just to make other people pay or to make other people feel inferior to us. Lord, we failed in so many ways to be oriented to the gospel, to, to, the, to the truth that your beauty has been given to us as a free gift. And we pray, Lord, that you would, that you would call us back, that you would use your word, you would use your people, you would use our friends, even our enemies, to help us to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.